0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Doctor is In, the podcast where we focus on optimizing the indoor plant environment for crops growing in greenhouses, indoor farms, vertical farms, plant factories, containers, and any other facility where we want to grow plants anytime and anywhere. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba. Today, we are going to talk about six HVAC strategies that you can use to control air quality in the indoor plant environment. Now, a lot of people think about HVAC in terms of climate control, right? we're we're using heating, air conditioning, dehumidification, ventilation, all these systems in order to manage the temperature and the humidity and the vapor pressure deficit of the room's environment, as well as control air movement across our plants. But HVAC is also important in terms of how we manage air quality in the indoor plant environment. You know, we can kind of break it down into a few different types of air quality characteristics uh, that we are trying to manage. First, there are gases. Uh, second, are particulates. And third, I'm going to sort of just lump together as pests and pathogens. You know, when it comes to gases, the first one we want to think about is the one that is beneficial to plants, and that is carbon dioxide, right? Plants need CO2 to photosynthesize. When the carbon dioxide level is higher than the ambient concentration, there are plenty of studies that show that we get plants that grow a lot faster uh, under those higher concentrations. The opposite is true. When we have low concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere around the plants, we can get slow growth or even stalled growth of our crops. Uh, I had a client one time that was doing a great job at managing temperature and humidity and water and and all the and and light levels and all the different variables required to grow plants. And they called me and they're like, Nadia, we cannot figure out. Why are plants won't grow? Everything seems perfect. And so we're kind of walking through it, you know, walking through the checklist and finally, you know, I I, I we were talking about it, I was like, you know, well, you guys have a recirculating air conditioning system. You guys are enriching with carbon dioxide, right? Dead silence. Somebody leaves, they're like, "Hold on." They they leave the room, they come back and they're like, "Oh my gosh, you know, no, I think It's because we're not enriching with carbon dioxide and our CO2 levels are less than 200 parts per million. So we discovered that the cause of their slow growth was not because they had bad temperature and bad light. It was because they were literally starving their plants of carbon dioxide, the the, the, the source of the energy that they need to grow, you know, so. So knowing this, um, growers often target somewhere between 800 and 1,500 parts per million. And, you know, the the concentration really depends a lot on what your crop is, what your light levels are, and your temperature levels, right? Because we want to balance them all together. But in general, higher levels of CO2 do accelerate plant growth. Okay, now let's talk about gases that could potentially be pollutants. To our plants. You know, a big one is ethylene. A lot of new growers um, don't necessarily recognize the importance of ethylene uh, in their plant production space and how it can impact the health of their plants, especially if their plants are flowering or fruiting. Ethylene is what causes our fruits to ripen. Many of you may have heard the trick. If you want to ripen an avocado more quickly, stick it in a paper bag with a banana, close it up, and you know the next day you will have a perfectly ripe avocado. Well, what's happening there is that the banana is giving off this ethylene gas as it ripens, and it is then transferring that ethylene to the avocado, which then in turn ripens. Uh, we also do this with tomatoes. Uh, For example, where we might pick a tomato green out of the field and then we stick it in a truck and on its way to the supermarket or on the way to the cold storage facility, it gets gassed with ethylene, which breaks down the chlorophyll in the skin of that tomato, leaving behind the red hue that we then see at the grocery store. So, yes, it has sort of ripened the tomato in terms of how it looks, but it doesn't necessarily make it taste any better but ethylene is also potentially bad especially for crops that are growing ethylene is what causes leaf abscission in other words it causes leaves to break off from its branch and fall to the ground that is why we call fall fall is because those leaves are falling and those plants are producing ethylene as they are aging and getting ready for winter degrading the chlorophyll in that green leaf and leaving behind the true color of that leaf which is a a brown it starts as sort of red and yellow and brown and and then that leaf eventually falls off it can also cause flowers to shatter so if you have a potted plant that it has flowers on it or even if you have a cannabis plant that has flowers starting to grow on it, if that plant is exposed to ethylene in fairly low concentrations, actually, um, those flowers may abort and shatter and and you won't get a good crop. Some growers have learned this by trying to run CO2 burners um, in their indoor facility, CO2 burners that aren't Operating on natural gas or don't have the right air fuel ratio and are are burning sort of dirty. They're not just producing carbon dioxide and heat and water vapor, they could also be producing other harmful gases such as ethylene for your plants as well as SOX and NOX for which is harmful, obviously to people. There's also some evidence starting to come out that formaldehyde might also impact plant growth and development. Formaldehyde is found a lot in the glues and adhesives in our furniture, in our building materials. Um, so you might want to pay attention to that. There's more research. I hope that is coming on these other gases. Um, at right now, I think it's a little more anecdotal than you know scientifically proven. But you know we know formaldehyde. Is not good for us, so chances are it's not good for plants either. The other big one is a plant emitted gas. If you are growing cannabis or even basil, then you um, have experienced biogenic volatile organic compounds. These are the odors that we smell from these various plants. You know, when it comes to cannabis, obviously we know that there are issues around odor mitigation and complaints around the smell of indoor and greenhouse cannabis facilities. Some recent research has revealed what is the source of that sort of skunky smell, or I should say maybe characteristic skunky smell. And that has been determined to be this BVOC called 321-MBT-thiol. The thing is with, with this particular odorous compound is that we as humans can detect it at extremely low concentrations at less than 0.1 parts per billion in the air we humans can sniff it out. And so, you know, when we have such low concentrations of a VOC that makes it of course very challenging to remove it from from the air so that we can't smell it. Okay so the the third type of you know air quality constituent that we might be concerned about are particulates. Uh, these particulates could be pollen, right? Cannabis growers are especially concerned about cross-pollination from maybe nearby fields or breeding programs that you know are using uh, male plants or producing male plants. That the, some of that pollen from the nearby male plants might you know contaminate their female. Cannabis plants in their facility. Uh, there has been concern about cross pollination with hemp fields, though I think some research is starting to show that the hemp flower is not cross breeding with the the cannabis or marijuana flower. The other thing, you know, is, is dust. Uh, I I don't think a lot of people think about the dust that is around us. You know, if you are in an urban environment, you know, you might be close to roads, you might be close to railroad tracks, you might be close to other activities that are kicking up dust and dirt and other types of debris that could come in and contaminate your facility. Uh, You know, we've had a couple of, of Clients who have been close by. Um, in one case, a recycling plant, and in another case, I'm not kidding, a rock crushing plant and literally across the street from there. And and I'm, you know, standing on the roof of these facilities looking out thinking, oh my God, you know, how much dust is that kicking up and how much are we potentially bringing in to our quote unquote clean environment? So when you're scoping out a new facility, look around, see who your neighbors are. Is there a lot of traffic? Is there the potential for a lot of dust as well as other harmful VOCs and gases from coming into your facility? You know, and and I'm based in California. And one of the big concerns that we have here, of course, is smoke and ash from all the fires that we have been dealing with recently. And of course, we would like to keep those out and not contaminate our plants as well. You know, we have insect pests. Of course, we want to try to keep insects out of our facilities. You know, aphids, thrips, whiteflies, there's a long list of insects that we want to keep out and that we can keep out with our HVAC systems with good HVAC design. And the last one is plant pathogens. You know, when it comes to HVAC, we're really concerned about airborne pathogens, right? Not waterborne pathogens. You know, the waterborne pathogens tend to be bacterias, you know, such as E. coli or Legionella. There are, of course, um, some pretty common molds that are waterborne in hydroponic systems like Pythium, right? But that's not what we are concerned about here with HVAC. With HVAC, we're concerned about the air, And the two big ones, uh, the two big molds are powdery mildew and botrytis. And we wanna try to keep those mold spores out of our grow room and then remove them if they are detected. You know, I also just wanna make a comment about viruses. You know, there's a lot of concern right now in the industry, especially the cannabis industry, about the hop latent viroid. It's not a virus. It's actually a viroid, which means that the, you know, replicates through RNA and it doesn't have a protein coating. It's very, very small. It's very hard to remove once it's detected. But here's the thing about plant viruses. Plant viruses are only transmitted through touch. They are not transmitted through the air. So when you have a sales guy trying to sell you a HEPA filter for your indoor plant environment so that you can avoid hop latent viroid or tobacco mosaic virus or variegation or you know whatever the source of the virus is, you can just politely tell him to leave. You don't need that for your plants. Maybe you want it for your, your human environments, for your offices, because that HEPA filter will remove airborne viruses such as the coronavirus, the flu virus, the cold virus. But it is going to do nothing for your plants because viruses and viroids are only transmitted through touch, either by people touching them or tools that are transferring the virus from one plant to the next plant. So... No need for HEPA filters in your indoor plant environment unless you are trying to protect people from human airborne viruses, not your plants from plant viruses. Okay, so those are the sources of potential air contamination, right? The constituents that we are concerned about. So let's talk about the six strategies that we can use with HVAC systems to control air quality in the indoor plant environment number one ventilation so thinking back to carbon dioxide and that facility that had recirculating air and no co2 enrichment if they were ventilating if they were bringing outside air into their facility they could at least maintain ambient co2 levels and not starve their plants Sure, 350, 450 parts per million of CO2 is not going to have accelerated plant growth, but at least the plants wouldn't starve. Also, you know, when it comes to people, we also want low carbon dioxide concentrations. Many studies are coming out showing that even just slightly elevated levels of CO2 affects our ability to think and makes us tired, right, at really high levels of CO2. So if you have your whole crew in the farm, in the facility and they're all harvesting or they're all pruning and you notice that maybe you know they're they're lagging a little bit. It might not be because they're tired of the work itself, but because the CO2 levels are being maintained for plants at 1,500 parts per million, as opposed to people at less than a 1,000 parts per million. So this is where ventilation can actually come in handy, is that you could stop your CO2 enrichment during those few hour periods where you have a lot of people in the room who are generating CO2 anyway and breathing on the plants. So now you can ventilate, bring that CO2 concentration down and give your people, you know, a lot of a lot more oxygen to do the work, the physical activity that we're asking them to do. And then when they all leave, you can turn the ventilation off and start enriching again with CO2. Also, you know, if you are enriching with CO2, you are probably required to have an emergency purge exhaust system installed at your facility. And this is essentially ventilation. We're bringing outside air in and replacing in order to replace the inside air that has, you know, excessively high CO2 levels. So so ventilation can help your plants, it can help your people, and it can be used for purge. The other thing is that You know, what if you do have infected air? What if you do have a pathogen or a pest in your facility? By ventilating, you can actually help to dilute that infected air so that, you know, the the overall concentration of that bad constituent becomes less because you're bringing in clean air in. So, you know, I know a lot of people are concerned about bringing contaminated outside air in. And I talked about having neighbors that that might be producing, you know, a lot of dust or fires that are producing a lot of smoke and ash. But in general, you know, ventilation can be very clean, especially if we have particle filters, good particle filters. So that is number two. The number two strategy is to use good particle filters that can both remove insects and mold spores. So insect screens bird screens. It all starts right there, right? We we have bird screens and have a really thick mesh size cuz we don't want birds coming in and pecking at our grapes or pecking at whatever it is, our strawberries in our indoor facilities. Then we have the next level, which is insect screens, right? And insect screens come in all different mesh sizes and a lot of us are trying to keep say thrips out or even just aphids out and, you know, keep them from entering through the airstream. And then we have mold spores. And in order to remove mold spores, what we need is a filter that has a MERV 11 rating or better. At MERV 11, we are able to remove mold spores that are the size of powdery mildew and botrytis. So what I like to do as as an HVAC designer is have two filters in series, if possible. A, A lower efficiency MERV 8 filter that takes out larger, particles and then a MERV 11 or higher filter after that that is then used to remove the smaller particles so that they're in series and you can maintain the longevity of the MERV 13 filter as long as possible because it is more expensive than the lower efficiency MERV 8 filter. I already talked about the use of HEPA filters. I do believe that they are overkill for indoor plant environments. If we're trying to eliminate plant viruses, you don't need HEPA filters. Okay, next is number three is radiation. So irradiation is like what it sounds. We are going to radiate the air with light. The two most common methods of irradiation are using UVC light and UVV light, and they are used for really two different purposes. UVC is the spectrum of light that denatures DNA. So basically we can use it for microbial decontamination. So if we can irradiate the air and there are say mold spores or even viruses in the air, and we irradiate that air with UVC, it can penetrate that that spore and, and denature its protein and kill it. We would see this most often uh, used for uh, keeping uh, the cooling coils clean on the, on the HVAC unit. Um, again, that is protecting the unit from waterborne illnesses or waterborne pathogens and not necessarily airborne ones, um, but it does help to increase the lifespan of those cooling coils by doing so. It also helps to remove any biofilm that might grow on those coils. So it, 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 it maintains its efficacy, the coils ability to cool and dehumidifier for longer. We could irradiate the air by having UVC lamps lining the ductwork, either the return air ductwork or the supply air ductwork going to and from the room. But usually when we are discharging air or returning that air back to the unit, we have really high air velocities, of like 2,500 feet per minute. Or higher. And so that means that, that those mold spores are passing through that duct at, a, at an incredible velocity. And in order to effectively irradiate those mold spores, you need a certain amount of contact time between the mold spore, say, and the radiation that's hitting it. And in order to do that at 2,500 feet per minute, you might need 20 feet of length of of duct that has UV lamps lining the interior of it in order to effectively kill um, or denature the DNA of those mold spores. That can be very expensive, not just in terms of first cost of buying those UVC lamps and then replacing those UVC lamps, but also there is energy that is required, right, to operate uh, those UV lamps. So, you know, probably not um, the most cost-effective method, especially when particle filters will remove the same pathogens that we are trying to kill with UVC, but it can offer you a second level of protection. The other type of UV radiation we might find in an indoor plant environment that could be effective is UVV. And this acts through ozone oxidation. So we could, we could kill um, microbial pathogens um, through UVV, but what we tend to use it more for is killing odors. Um, through that ozonation, through that ozone oxidation, we are actually able to break apart those volatile organic compounds and render them odorless. Um, however, because it produces ozone, I would only ever recommend UVV on the exhaust airstream from the room. I would never use it in the room, pointed towards the plants, or anywhere where that ozone could leak into the room. So, so I like to put it on the exhaust, especially if I'm using it for odor control, right? I mean, and and we have exhaust leaving the building or leaving the room, that just seems like the most logical place to put it, anyway, because we want to kill the odors that might be leaving, not that is necessarily within the room. Um, you know, there are plenty of challenges with UV. One is that you need line of sight, right, in order to kill those mold spores or break up those those VOCs, right? And when you have radiation, the the light has to see the thing that it's going to affect. Um, The other thing is that if you increase the distance of the lamp to what you are trying to contact, what you're trying to kill or denature, um, the further the distance that lamp is from that thing um, reduces the efficacy. So imagine you have a duck that's two feet by two feet. Well, the mold spores that are running, you know, potentially along the edges of that duct, they are going to be killed much more quickly and much more effectively because the lamps are, you know, lining the surface, the interior surface of that duct. But any mold spores that might be traveling right down the center of that duct, you know, they're not going to be affected very well. Um, so so that really matters. And I also I'll, I also mentioned earlier the high air velocities that run through ducts and the very large air volumes um, that we are pushing through these ducts. And so that just makes it even more challenging uh, to make UV effective. Okay, the fourth HVAC related strategy that we can use to clean the air is ozonation. Ozonation is used for a few purposes or could be used for a few purposes. One is, I mentioned already, odor reduction. Um, And and again, I would only ozonate the air that is leaving the building or leaving the room. We also see ozonation being used for room sanitation, especially between harvests. So, you know, when there's that two-day takedown period uh, or turndown period uh, you can ozonate that room uh, in between those harvest periods to sanitize everything, all the surfaces that are in that room. I have heard of growers using it during cultivation, but at very low concentrations of less than 0.05 parts per million. And, and those would be recommended by the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S., The other place that you see ozonation is for waterborne pathogens. So again, not necessarily my area of expertise, but ozone has been shown to be very effective in disinfecting water for hydroponics. It also increases the dissolved oxygen content because ozone is O3, a compound compound. O3. And so it actually produces oxygen as, as that that third oxygen molecule kind of rips off. And then it goes and finds another, you know, uh, rogue um, oxygen molecule, and they form together to produce oxygen and leave behind, you know, an O2 when it, you know, leaves. So so you can increase the dissolved oxygen content of the water for hydroponics. and And both of those things really help to facilitate Root growth. Okay, the fifth method of cleaning the air through HVAC systems is odor mitigation, right? And the best method that we have found so far is carbon filters. This is brute force odor mitigation. We can use this on recirculated air or exhaust air, but you know, I think everyone is familiar with this where we have. These carbon filters usually attach to a fan that recirculates air in the room or is on the exhaust stream leaving the room, and that air passes across the carbon filter, and those volatile organic compounds adhere to the the carbon, and clean air leaves that carbon filter. So, it is very effective, but it is not targeted. So it's going to remove all volatile organic compounds, whether or not they smell. Uh, it also, if in a humid environment, those carbon filters don't work as well. And as growers become have become more comfortable with higher humidities and lower vapor pressure deficits, the efficacy of these carbon filters is going to come into question, and and what that could mean is that rather than just having one carbon filter, you have two, so that you get double the duty under fifty percent uh, efficacy, right? Under that higher humidity environment, um, other methods of odor mitigation I've already mentioned, which is UVV and ozonation, which I would only recommend on the exhaust stream. The six HVAC related strategy to control air quality in indoor plant environment I find is super overlooked and this is room pressurization this is a very common concept for other critical environment designs so if you are in a lab in a healthcare facility any type of facility where you have adjacent spaces that might have contaminated air next to clean air, we can use room pressurization in order to direct the air to where we want it to go. So if we assume that an indoor plant environment, that the grow room is the clean room and that the hallway next to it, for example, is the dirty room, we should be positively pressurizing the grow room relative to that hallway to discourage pests and pathogens from entering the grow room just through air passing through doorways under door jams right through any sort of cracks or leaks or just gaps right in the building construction in those partitions and so To positively pressurize the room means we need to call on the number one strategy, which is ventilation. We need to have more air delivered to the grow room than is delivered to the room adjacent to it so that the grow room is positive compared to the adjacent room, which would be considered negative. In this way, by adding more air, more outside air. If you think about it, you add outside air, and if it doesn't have anywhere to go, and you just continuously dump water into the bucket, right, you are going to blow that room up like a balloon. But if you have a door jam, if you have, you know, a transfer grill that is specifically designed to allow air to push through to the other side. Then we create a positive, critical room environment for our grow room. What about negative pressure? Right? I mean, there are some local jurisdictions that have codes that say that these grow rooms should be negatively pressurized. And usually what they're reasoning is to keep odors in, to contain odors, because if if we positively pressurize, especially a cannabis facility, right, we could be pushing those odors out of the building, making it smell worse. And so some jurisdictions have said, no, you need to have a negative pressure, which means that we are sucking more air in um, than we are pushing it out. You know, what I have to say about that is that there is literally nothing hazardous being produced in these indoor grow rooms, at least nothing hazardous to people. Yes, it might be a nuisance, but it's not a toxin, those volatile organic compounds. Also, carbon dioxide is not a toxin. So if somebody wanted to make claims, well, you're going to push all this CO2 out into the hallway or out of the building and increase the CO2 concentration into those adjacent rooms, right? So, so let's just say we have 1,500 parts per million target in our grow room and we want you know, less than 1,000 parts per million out in the hallway. Okay, yes, carbon dioxide does affect our cognitive ability, but CO2 is not a toxin. In, in fact, Ashrae just put out a position paper this year, earlier this year that that, you know, confirmed CO2 is not a toxin. Thank the gods. I'm sure our plants are very happy to hear that. Um and 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 then what we can do is, you know, so okay, maybe we push a little CO2 out into the hallway. Have your engineers do a mass balance to figure out what would be the concentration of CO2 In those people environments relative to the plant environment, and does it exceed, you know, a thousand parts per million or some other limit that somebody wants to come up with that would then require just more ventilation for the hallways or for those people spaces um, to bring more ambient air in. So, you know, there is this cascading effect that we can take advantage of where the grow room can be positive, keep out pests and pathogens. Yes, maybe push some odors out. Yes, maybe push some CO2 out. But are those really bad constituents that we need to control? And if if they are odor, we have lots of methodologies to control it. And with CO2, we also have lots of methodologies and the most common one being ventilation. So, you know, at the, those are the six strategies related to HVAC. But I can't really talk about air quality and you know and and the health of the plant without also talking about sanitation and people activities, right? Having employees that have good personal hygiene uh, is really important. We know that with a lot of early adopters in the cannabis industry, A lot of the growers who were working in these large 5,000-square-foot farms and larger might have had home gardens, right, either growing vegetables or growing cannabis. And they would come into these facilities, and they wouldn't wear gloves. They wouldn't change their clothes or not wearing hairnets, and they would transfer those pathogens from outside to inside. They might not even have a garden, honestly. They might've just walked under a tree with aphids um, and, and brought the aphid into the facility. So having a protocol, right, having SOPs where your employees come in, go through a clean room, change their clothes in the locker room, gown up, wear gloves, right, wash their hands are all very important for preventing the bringing in of pathogens from the outside, you know, I I like to say that it's not the air that is the vector for pathogens, it's people that are the vector. And this is a really good example of that. Um, You know, gloves and gowns are effective, but only if we don't reuse them over and over without washing them or replacing them, right? If you make your employees wear gloves to work on the plants and then they move from one room, To another room wearing the same gloves what was the point of having two different rooms to you know to contain potential pathogens now that employee might transfer a pathogen from one room to the other room on their gloves so they might as well have just not worn gloves in the first place so you know having protocols in place around sanitation and gloves and clothing is also really important and the third thing is be sure to sanitize your tools. Again, plant viruses are transferred by touch and pruners and other tools that are used to to harvest and maintain the crops. If those tools touch one plant that has HLV, it is going to transfer that HLV to the next plant and the next plant and the next plant. So, you know, cleaning that tool in a bleach solution um, or Sanidate or some other solution that is effective at killing viruses and killing pathogens is going to be really important to do, not just after finishing pruning an entire room, but even in between pruning events, pruning activities. Um, uh, in the same room, um, it, you know, multiple times in the same couple of hours. Okay, so that is the six strategies for controlling air quality in indoor plant environment. Number one, ventilation. Number two, particle filtration. Number three, irradiation. Number four, ozonation. Five, odor mitigation and six room pressurization and do not count out the importance of sanitation all right everybody thank you so much for listening to this episode the doctor is in please reach out to us contact us on instagram linkedin um, and we'd love to hear from you and even hear any topics you would like me to discuss on future podcast episodes all right have a great day everybody